What would you say is the worst thing that this person did? Consciously created the dysfunction in the organization that he did uh, through, uh, you know, the endless reorganizations, persecution of people. The biggest thing I think that, and the worst, was just the dysfunction that he created from his, his leadership approach and his management philosophy because it was, it was palpable. It was there every day. You could tell just by walking in the door that this organization was dysfunctional. If you did have, let's say, an opportunity to say something to the toxic leader, what would you say to them? The Tom Screen Podcast is owned and made possible by Ethical Marketing Service. If your business is struggling with Google or Facebook ads, maybe you're frustrated figuring it out or there's a performance issue, Ethical Marketing Service has worked on hundreds of accounts and we can help in this area. We offer a 30-day money-back guarantee and for every direct account we look after, we sponsor a child in a developing nation with food, water and education. If you would like to find out if we can help, it's a free no salesy consultation call and the link is in the description. Enjoy the episode. Thomas Green here with Ethical Marketing Service. On the episode today, we have Gordon Graham. Gordon, welcome. Thank you, Thomas. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to have you. Would you like to take a moment and tell the audience a bit about yourself and what you do? Uh, I am a retired uh, information technology professional. I spent uh, close to 40 years in the industry, mostly with electric utilities, uh, specifically hydroelectric utilities up in the the Pacific Northwest. Uh, During that period of time, I I experienced uh, a situation with my actually my longest term employer where we acquired a a very toxic manager and uh, it resulted in my termination i guess the uh, the conflict between our uh, particular management philosophies resulted in my termination and uh, as a result i was encouraged by family friends acquaintances to to record this story, to uh, write a book about that experience, and it took me quite a while after I, I had retired, to uh, to get around to doing it. But then I finally realized um, I didn't want to be in the situation where I knew I didn't have time left to get it done, and realized that I hadn't done that uh, sort of an unfulfilled purpose type of thing. And so I wrote a book. And it's called the uh, Intrepid Brotherhood. It's actually on the wall behind me uh, on a plaque. Uh, looks like this. <laughs> uh, available uh, most of the uh, typical uh, book outlets. And um, anyway, it's been an interesting process. Um, sort of a catharsis for me to uh, finally get the whole the whole episode uh, off of my chest, so to speak. Uh, but really, I wrote it uh, as as a uh, a lesson type of uh, of uh, book, uh, cautionary tale, so to speak, for board members, CEOs, uh, any employee that might be um, might want to avoid 
the same type of dysfunction in their own organization. So that's that's who I am uh, and and why I'm here. Thank you for sharing it. It sounds like a very um, worthwhile read. You mentioned uh, it being cathartic. Was it quite a therapeutic exercise for you to do it, or was it quite painful? Uh, it, well, both, but uh, for the most part, it was it was uh, fun. Uh, there's really no other way to put it. Revisiting those things and uh, having conversations with people that I hadn't spoken to in years and detecting their level of engagement and cooperation and support that I got from them was extremely rewarding. And uh, it it just uh, it, it made me feel better about the whole experience, being able to to tap their memories um, and the resources available to me to get this down in print to be able to provide people with this type of uh, guidance or lesson uh, so that they may be able to avoid the same type of thing in their own environment. I would like to um, get into the, should we say, the story that you have written about, but at the same time, I, I'm interested to know what you'd like people to take from it. So if, if your aim being, you know, um, the reason why you wrote the book, what would you like people to take away from reading it? I think uh, the realization, especially in today's uh, environment and uh, contemporary leadership writers, the thing they they emphasize is is uh, an inspirational approach, a servant leadership approach, in contrast to someone who is self serving and and creates a toxic environment for their own their own benefit and their own advancement, I suppose at the expense of virtually everybody else in the organization and the organization as a whole, because it has a tendency to change the mission and vision uh, of, of the company. And that ripples down through the whole organization and people have a tendency to, well, there's a dilemma. You have to decide whether or not you want to support that new strategy or if you believe in what the company was trying to achieve initially when you signed on and depending on which way you go uh it will it will determine whether or not you physically check out um just decide to unsubscribe to the the whole situation or if you mentally check out and and decide to become a sycophant and follow this uh, new leadership philosophy and strategy and uh, and mentally check out just go to work every day and perform your duties um i suppose i'm still searching for an audience for this book <laughs> and uh i i think uh, the the best application of it is probably as a case study in uh mba programs leadership programs uh workshops it's a it's a terrific example of what can happen if you get the wrong person in charge of your organization. Um, I hope that answered your question. Yeah, I think so. Um, it does make me. You, you said one thing, which um, for, for whatever reason I don't know why I thought it was more than one person. Was it really it one bad hire essentially to run the company, which then had a, a highly detrimental effect on the rest of the company? 
So essentially it was one person, uh, but the, the interesting thing about it is that depending on that decision people make uh, in that dilemma when they're trying to decide whether or not they, they agree with that individual and want to follow that leadership model, um, that, that one person can, just through that synergy, can, uh, can grow, um, have larger tentacles through the entire organization represented by other people. And so those followers have a tendency to uh, perpetuate and extend uh, that type of toxic environment, uh, whether or not they, they are conscious of it. Uh, if they have subscribed to that philosophy, then yeah, that one person becomes many. And I think it happens probably in every situation like that. You will have a number of people who who just haven't disciplined themselves to um, to know what uh, inspirational leadership and true leadership uh, really is and can't recognize what's happening to them and what's being done to their company. So you said you mentioned servant leadership and inspirational leadership. If you had to describe what this person's approach was to leadership, what their philosophy is, to taking over a company, how would you describe it? Well, toxic's probably the the most commonly used term manifested, I guess, in things like uh, persecution of individuals that didn't immediately subscribe to his philosophy. I mean, just um, persistent persecution and progressive persecution. Um, and one of the biggest uh, characteristics that we have uncovered, I think since this book has been written just in the discussions that I've had with, with other hosts and, uh, and people in the utility environment and industry now and rekindling some of those relationships that I had before, people have observed that one of the, the biggest problems is, uh, is noncompliance. And by that, I mean, if you have someone who is only interested in advancing their own agenda, it typically is at the expense of, of administrative instructions, rules, regulations, uh, state laws, federal laws. Uh, they, they have the opinion uh, and the operating procedure rules for thee and not for me. And so every one of those policies that you, in your capacity, whatever it is, as an employee, have been expected to adhere to for your entire career suddenly becomes um, optional, discretionary for the person who's leading your organization. They can circumvent hiring procedures, um, contract procedures, uh, virtually everything that uh, that dictates how your business is supposed to be run becomes um, not necessarily unimportant, but uh, a secondary thought to someone who is uh, in the frame of mind of the person that I'm, I'm referring to in the, the, uh, the main uh, toxic leader in, in my book, in my story. So that's that's one of the biggest things is that noncompliance. And it uh, it should, as an employee, make you feel uncomfortable, very uncomfortable, because uh, the 
the the whole implication is that at some point someone's going to come in someone with the the appropriate authority is going to come in and say well this is not uh, adhering to the requirements uh, that you're supposed to follow and so your organization can and should uh, incur penalties and go through some kind of uh, correction process. And unfortunately, a lot of times it doesn't happen to the degree that it should. There are things that are overlooked, swept under the rug. Um, you know, whoever the audit uh, function is performed by, um, there is some influence to have them discover <laughs> another uh, result than what is actually there. Um, and so, you know, the corruption actually extends and grows. <laughs> Uh, but that's, uh, uh, I guess, one of the biggest issues I wanted to uh, make sure to bring out is that noncompliance. Um, things like uh, uh, champion uh, mentality where the CEO would uh, pick someone to manage a particular initiative that had no expertise or ex experience uh, qualifications in that area. Uh, just because they were complicit, they were cooperative, they were, uh, they subscribed to his philosophy. And, and so the organization suffers uh, from that perspective because those people typically aren't successful to the degree that, uh, that if someone who had, uh, would, someone would be who had uh, the experience in that area that was required in order to bring those projects to fruition. Um, yeah, those are the, I think the types of things, the biggest things, uh, the circumvention of policies, uh, noncompliance, uh, just the, the whole toxic environment, persecution of individuals that that don't subscribe to his or her philosophy, um, creating positions for people that, that do uh, undeserved promotions, um, endless reorganizations, uh, you know, that are either uh, supposed to be rewards or punishment, one or the other. Um, yeah, there's, uh, there's probably an endless list of characteristics, but, I got kind of long-winded on that one. Sorry. No, you're fine. I was just listening. Um, I I do like the the discussion on ethics because um, it just for me it helps provide clarity. Um, and I just to make a differentiation, there there is I kind of feel like there's a lot there which are should we say um, not recommended behaviors. So perhaps uh, promoting someone based not on merit but based on whether they go along with what I say versus perhaps unethical behavior, like you mentioned, for example, law breaking laws there for a reason, for example. So at what point would you say um, this person crossed over into unethical behavior? I think probably the best example is, is the noncompliance. Um, the, the, uh, I guess a leader who, subscribes to uh to policies procedures uh those types of things uh follows the processes defined by the organization 
because they have to is is not the ethical leader that you're looking for. What what you really want to see in them is uh, someone who who will be an example, uh, who will and set that example for the entire organization and the people that serve them uh, and the organization. Uh, the that's probably the biggest contrast I think between. Uh, or the biggest example of a non-ethical factor characteristic, whatever is, um, is only, only subscribing to established policies and procedures if and when they have to, and, and actually trying to circumvent those to the greater, greatest degree that they can, uh, versus someone who knows that the organization is going to achieve more or as much as they possibly can by everyone adhering to to those uh, policies, procedures, administrative instructions, and processes of the organization, and adhering to the mission, vision, and strategy that's been established. Um, and and that that permeates everything. If if a an individual, a leader, decides not to adhere to established processes, those things that are are known and adhered to by everyone else, it can it can permeate every other part of the organization and it becomes apparent that that they don't possess the ethics that are necessary or that they should have uh, in order to to lead to that degree. The Interesting thing about ethics, I mean, the, the linchpin, I guess, and you might, you might have been leading into this uh, to bring up in a moment, but the, the linchpin for my book is Aristotelian ethics. And the only reason that I use that is because when I was going through my MBA program, actually pretty early in my experience with this individual at that employer, I, there were a number of writers at the time who relied on uh, Aristotle and Confucius and, and ancient philosophers to establish current leadership and management principles that people should follow. And so I came across Aristotle a number of times in that program and became pretty familiar with uh, at least the interpretation or translation of his uh, Nicomachean or virtue ethics um, in in management in leadership, but one thing that's interesting about um, about the translation of of Aristotle's virtue ethics is is the the term the Latin term that was used to to describe his writings his ethical philosophies translated. Uh, for decades into virtue, the actual term or word virtue in our language. And so when you when you read about uh, Aristotle's ethics, it, that that term, that word always seems to emerge and it's always called Aristotelian virtue ethics. But uh, more recently, I came across a a uh, uh, article that said uh, that word may better be translated as as excellence rather than virtue, 
because we we have a tendency in Western society these days to ascribe different things to virtue. There's um, there's religious doctrine. There's um, just behavioral things that that we think are dependent upon that term, that concept. But if you translate the the Latin term that described his ethics into into ethics or into excellence rather than virtue, it leaves you with um, the impression that what you're actually trying to achieve is the proper state or or condition for a human rather than something that that is virtuous because it just brings a whole lot of things to the table when you use that term. So performing well in the function of being a human is really what he was trying to convey, I think, with his his ethical concepts of uh, wisdom and temperance and bravery and justice. Um, anyway, uh, those those are uh, the things that I came to realize as I was writing this book. Uh, I used Aristotle as kind of the centerpiece for a couple of reasons. One was just to establish the the conflict or the the upcoming conflict in the story. So we use that uh, Aristotelian ethics uh, approach or definition early in the story to kind of prepare the reader for the emergence of this toxic leader and the not necessarily the battle, but the the difference between him and the way we had been trying to structure ourselves and and uh, grow ourselves as leaders in our department. And then later on in the book, there is a part where after the trial, uh, my claim against the PUD, the, the, the company came to trial. There was an individual in the local newspaper who emerged uh, in the letters to the editor section who supported the the uh the employer the the district my former employer uh, to the degree that he pretty much assassinated my character and questioned my motives and actually he was the only voice at the time who took the side of of the organization of the company and he called himself the pseudonym he used was aristotle so it was kind of doubly interesting that we we kind of created this uh, not created but experienced this conflict between our Aristotelian approach to building our our uh, organization our department the the staff within our purview so to speak uh, with these uh, ethical characteristics and and uh, the battle that we had against the uh, toxic leader uh, and and we used Aristotle as the example uh, and then this individual emerged with completely the opposite perspective uh, late in the story and characterized himself as Aristotle and I don't know I don't know who that is. We suspect we know who that individual was, but since he used a pseudonym, he or she, uh, we we decided that we didn't really want to know because it's part of the mystery and it uh, it it fit well. Uh, leaving it that way in the story at the end, there uh, leaving this person as 
a mystery and unknown because uh, just relating that that discrepancy that conflict that uh, i guess juxtaposed uh position um was was enough and calling himself aristotle was just really really interesting well, it's interesting that you mentioned the um the excellence um rather than virtue point because uh, the quote which is attributed to aristotle rightly or wrongly is uh, excellence is not an act but a, ha- a habit um is something that people always say about him um and one thing which is completely not related to what i just said is, that i w- want to ask you about is is the person named in the book yes uh that's one big uh, decision that that I had to make when I went into this because it is a memoir. Um, it, but you always have the option to use, uh, use made up names, use, you know, avoid actually naming people. So I went through a couple of, uh, legal workshops, consulted with a couple of literary attorneys, uh, as well as my former legal counsel up where these events occurred. And then I also asked, my ghostwriter, who I should mention, uh, I don't want to overlook uh, John DeSimone, who actually put all this together for me. I had I had the outline I, and I assembled all the resources. And most of what he wrote, admittedly, was from those resources and his interviews with me. And so the book is mine. I'm the author. But John actually put it down on paper, so to speak. And so he he was a great resource, but he was also someone I consulted about about using real names. And in the end, I I am satisfied. I was satisfied that uh, that we could tell this story without defaming anyone, um, and because it's the truth. I mean, it's all based on fact. We had I had seven boxes of of legal files that were retained by my attorney up there that he he graciously just handed over to me when i told him i was going to write this uh and then the the archives from the newspaper up there were a tremendous resource um uh, you know absolutely indispensable for getting this done Uh, so yeah the it's all based on fact and there's hardly anything in there that we did. We didn't make leaps uh, as far as judgments on people's character. We just uh, documented the facts, related the facts, and some of it's left up to the reader to make their own judgment or decision. But yeah, we used uh, we used real names, and that individual, that toxic leader, is is named uh, referred to in innumerable places in this book. Uh, so, uh, there's very few people that, that we chose not to name. And usually in those situations where we didn't, it's because they just weren't, um, integral or, um, it wasn't necessary, uh, to, to enhance the story. And have you gotten any feedback from people that you knew at the time or people that were in the story? I've gotten uh, a tremendous amount of feedback from people that I knew, former staff members, uh, other department heads. There, the, there's a concept, of course, it's in the title, but there's a concept in this book of a brotherhood. And 
what that what that is is um, the idea that there were a number of us in mid management positions who realized that uh, what this individual was trying to do was uh, contrary to the mission and vision of the organization and was detrimental, was creating dysfunction. And so um, yeah, all of us suffered to some degree. Some were chased out earlier than, than I was. Some left voluntarily. Some were demoted, persecuted until they got in that uh, kind of constructive discharge mentality and realized that they needed to move on voluntarily. I was terminated, um, not for cause, but for a, a reason or a situation that they fabricated. And that's the reason I came back with my claim because I knew that there was no way that they could defend that position. And it turned out uh, that we, we prevailed and it was true that um, they, it was obvious the, the manipulation and what they were trying to do. Um, so the brotherhood concept uh, is, is central to this story. And a lot of those people provided a great deal of material for this book. And actually a lot of things that we, we talked about and that they related to me, I couldn't include in here just for, just for the, the sake of, of space and, uh, and economy, I guess that if we told all the stories that were available, uh, this would have been huge. It would have taken a lot longer than it did, but it, it presents the opportunity that we may go back at some time and do a brotherhood revisited or something and, uh, and tell some of the stories from their departments because they're really, really good. <laughs> uh, what would you say is the worst thing that this person did? The worst thing. Um, so just, just from a kind of a categorical perspective, I think the worst thing that he probably did was was consciously created the dysfunction in the organization that he did uh, through uh, you know the endless reorganizations, persecution of people. There were a number of things that he did operationally that came into question, especially during the time that we had some uh, commission candidates or candidates for the board of commissioners that were. Uh, I mean, referred to as reform candidates, they referred to themselves as reform candidates. And they, they made observations about some of the operational things that he had done. Uh, one of the big things was there was a, and this is related in the story, but there was a, a management retreat at one point where uh, he was there, most of the uh, the the corporate level or C-level folks were there in the organization. There were legal counsel. All of the uh, commissioners, elected commissioners were there, those that could attend. Our uh, internal legal counsel was there. His, uh, no other way to put it, his primary uh, sycophant. And if you've got internal legal counsel on your side to to uh, try to perpetuate your, your philosophy or leadership uh technique then i think you've got everything you need to, to get the ball rolling and so she was complicit 
And it's, uh, it's really, it's a shame because she had responsibility for all those compliance issues. But back to the management retreat that I started talking about, uh, one of the things, probably the biggest thing that they discussed there was privatization in, in one respect or another. Now, this organization that I worked for was a public utility district uh, formed as a state chartered public agency uh, within the laws of the state of Washington. And by you know that entity, what it implies, what it specifies is that it is technically it's owned by the ratepayers. It's a it's a government, it's a government institution. It is not a private utility. And the privatization things that were discussed are still kind of squishy. Uh, there was no, no final definition, but uh, the speculation, strong speculation, in fact, there's some documentation to this fact, is that what they wanted to do was to spin off or create a private entity that would have jurisdiction over what we called wholesale power sales. Now, the hydroelectric facilities in the Northwest, they produce power to meet their, their committed uh, contractual obligations and to serve the local community. Once those have been met, uh, then there is a surplus, typically, that can be sold as a commodity on the open market. Those power markets emerged um, back in the the 90s, I think, maybe the late 80s. And and it, it became pretty lucrative for even public utilities to be able to sell wholesale surplus power on the open market. Well, the concept at this management retreat was to create an entity to spin off this wholesale power function, privatize it, and to have officers, uh, uh, employees, and an elected board that would be paid based on commissions from wholesale power sales. So the, the whole idea was supported by our current elected board members at the public utility because the implication was that they would assume responsibilities in this private organization to also provide oversight like they did with the, the public utility, but they'd get paid for it. They'd get commissions or some part of the commissions from the wholesale power sale. Well, this um, raised uh, some hackles, uh, you know, obviously with community leaders when they learned about this privatization attempt because those wholesale power uh, revenues should have been put back into the organization to uh, to keep rates down, to improve uh, transmission and distribution, to to just uh, help with the operation and objectives of of the public utility side, and with a private entity that was distributing uh, gains from those wholesale power sales to individuals, it would at least dilute that, uh, that initial mission and vision to uh, achieve the lowest possible rates for 
the public power owners or the ratepayers in the organization or in the, the uh, service area. So that's what that was all about. Uh, that's one of the biggest operational things that he did that came into question. There were others, uh, but the biggest thing I think that, and the worst was just the dysfunction that he created from his, his leadership approach and his management philosophy, because it was, it was palpable. It was there every day. You could tell just by walking in the door that this organization was dysfunctional. If you did have, let's say, an opportunity to say something to the toxic leader, what would you say to them? What would I say? Um, you know, I would, I would ask, I would ask just like a, if I had the opportunity, if I was in the capacity these days where I was still employed and part of our responsibility was to, to interview uh, candidates for any leadership position, I would ask them, what type of plan do they have to, to stay current in their craft, to make sure that they are uh, achieving what should be expected of them as an inspirational leader? Um, I, and, and I would, I actually did. <laughs> Yeah, at least in some respects, part of the uh, part of the story is uh, a, is a recognized uh, meeting that I requested and had with this individual offsite one evening, and it was it was under a a program that was supposed to provide provide some cover or um, uh, I guess lack of uh, accountability for what you said or what you asked. It was uh, supposed to be just kind of an open conversation with, uh, with no retribution uh, as a possible result. And so uh, I asked if I could meet with him. We met uh, after hours and I told him about the dysfunction that I was recognizing in the organization. And the, the overall objective was to get uh, my function, which was information technology, integrated at the strategic planning level. Uh, the observations I made included, uh, if we don't do that, then this very, very important function, the information technology function, will always be reactionary. Uh, there will be a group of people, you, the commissioners, the rest of the executives, uh, who will, who will set, um, uh, you know, critical success factors and tactical initiatives or whatever at the strategic level. And then we will be expected to try to, to fit our resources to achieve those things for you as best we can with no model to follow with no guidance with no inclusion and it just doesn't make any sense uh, if if we had representation at the planning level at the table then then we would uh, we would at least be able to provide our input at that point so we could determine what impact it would have on our resources, how we needed to prioritize uh, where we dedicated those resources to get work done uh, in order to maximize 
the strategic objectives of the organization. But in in the absence of that, we will always be reactionary. And uh, the 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 reaction that he had, the uh, result of that meeting and me making that observation uh, surprised me a great deal. I don't know why it did, uh, because I, I already knew his character, but he took offense to to me making an observation that any organization that he managed would or could be dysfunctional, even though even though the analysis uh, I think would be the same for everyone that he was creating the dysfunction. And uh, he uh, he gave me um, kind of a uh, obscure ultimatum that. What I really needed to do was to improve my function or there would be consequences. And he didn't specify what, but he just he needed to do that uh, in order to bring his reaction full circle. uh, Because he had already made it apparent that he didn't like the fact that I had recognized this dysfunction or at least purported that that he was. responsible for an organization that was that dysfunctional and i think maybe he recognized that i might be attributing part of that at least part of that to him so that was uh that was a big clue and actually started um my downward spiral there was really nothing i could do to dig out of that hole after that point even though my supervisors and myself we dedicated ourselves to to uh, implementing best practices, IT service management, uh, project management, and change management procedures within our own department. And we embarked upon a program to transition from, uh, I guess, internally focused uh, IT professionals who have, a lot of times have a hard time communicating. I mean, admittedly, IT folks are viewed as a lot of times as cynical and sarcastic and and they are <laughs> so we recognized that and uh, tried to to get people to uh you know to push their limits and move out of that shell and become more customer focused and so we were doing all of that but we got no credit for it no recognition um And I certainly wasn't going to be recognized for any of those things because he had already put the target on my back. Well, um, I suppose in a sense you have, you've already said your piece then to him and you've also done um, a great job of getting the book out. So congratulations for that. Um, I also think it looks like there's probably a lot to learn from the book. So well worth a read. Is there, is there something that I, should have asked you about today that I haven't? Uh, I don't think so, other than uh, I think I already mentioned that it, the book can be obtained on uh, Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, uh, I think uh, Apple Books, uh, virtually everywhere that people would normally acquire something like that. And then my my website has a lot of information. It's just called intrepidbrotherhood.com. Um, and out there, there's uh, a lot about my background. There's some testimonials. There's it shows where the book can be obtained. I just started a blog 
which uh, is going to keep me busy. I think I I need to invest more time in the promotion of this than I have been, and so I'll be blogging some stuff about leadership topics and issues and stories from that period of time. So maybe that's where I'll insert some of those things I got from other members of the Brotherhood. Um, Let's see. I've got a LinkedIn profile that I really mostly what I do there is is share content from from other folks that are following inspirational leadership and servant leadership topics and material. Uh, but I also put things like uh, these podcasts out there for for general consumption. And so hopefully when this is released, I'll be able to post it out there. Uh, those are the primary places that people can learn more and obtain uh, obtain the book and ask me questions. There's actually opportunity to to submit a web form to ask questions about uh, the story about me, anything. I would be remiss if I did not do this, but part of part of the material in my book, and I don't know if we're going too long, but there's a a sketch artist by the name of Dan McConnell. And during the period of time that uh, all these events were taking place back a number of years ago, he he was submitting he was submitting these sketches to the newspaper that chronicled each one of them. So so Dan was the the actual conscience of the community at the time. And after I got this this book written, uh, John and I finished the manuscript, and I was beginning to look for a publishing outlet, uh, I thought about his sketches and and what he had done in the local newspaper at the time. And so I reached out to him, asked him if if he would be willing to let me put those in the book. So we negotiated a little bit, talked about uh, how they would be used. And he ended up sending me uh, electronic copies of all those sketches and I went through the manuscript and it was obvious uh, where I should put each one of them <laughs> just based on the chronology, the timeline and the events that occurred. So I just really plugged them in in the places that they they should have been, uh, uh, you know, initially. Uh, so he was a tremendous resource. Uh, Dan McConnell's a great sketch artist, great artist. And uh, it's been fun, um, you know, using his uh, his sketches and and keeping up with him. and. Uh, and getting in contact with him again. So I just wanted to make sure people were aware of, of his work and his contribution to the book. Uh, tremendous guy. And thanks for letting me take the time to do that. Yeah, no problem. Looks like good comedy anyway. But um, Gordon, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. This has been, this has been great.